The following episode contains material of a graphic nature and coarse language. Listener discretion is advised. I was conscious enough to know that was a conscious act on my part, and that was essentially the reason. To drown out that noise, for sure. Well, they might like a little entertainment, too, you know. At first, I tried to make it nice, right? Yeah, how, how did you do that here? Uh, I was holding parties there for one thing. Yeah. I consciously knew I was trying to hide the evidence. Nothing was working. I was trying to find something that worked that would make them shut up to stop so you know, I could aggressive kind of infliction of pain on these women. I was trying to find something that would make them behave. But it was painful to them. I hope so. You know, that's what I was trying to achieve, you know, to make them behave. They go down in the hole in the morning, board goes over the top of the hole with the sandbags, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then they stay down there till roughly about eight at night. I dismembered the body and, and I, I, you know, started burning it on the stove. If I was a torturer, why would I have waited so long to have started torturing? The, the, the torture and the pains didn't start until uh, really after January 29th. I'm, I'm sitting there, you know, trying to figure out what the hell to do, you know? What the f to do, you know? Huh? I start chopping up the body. The defendant's commission of these four murders over a 10-day period is one of the worst killing sprees in the history of this state. Skin them sometimes. Slit them, slit them all the way open. Uh, I'm here looking for the spirits of anybody that still remains. I have a device in my hand. If you would like to talk to it, please come forward. Tell me your story. Maybe I should have killed four or five hundred people, then I would have felt better. And when I felt like I really offered society something. You are listening to Serial Spirits, the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Serial Spirits, the podcast. It is me, your host, Brendan Shea, and with me as always is my beautiful, lovely co-host. Annie Weebs, what's up, Shea Bay? Well, Annie, I think today you're surprising me. I'm going oh, into I this. Love surprises. Oh, I'm going into this episode blind, not it's knowing like, what we're talking about, and I know it's it's a pretty depraved story. It's like serial killer Christmas today. You're welcome. Oh yeah, it's, it is going to be like Serial Killer Christmas. But before we get started in the episode, I want to thank everybody who's given us love and support, uh, who's gone to iTunes and left us a five-star review. Continue to do that. Continue checking out all our shows. We have a whole backlog on SoundCloud.com, so you can go there and check out all our earlier episodes. Uh, we did a, a whole first season, and we ended on a Serial Killer. So last episode, we came out of our ghost stories. And now we're going to dive back into uh, more true crime, and we're going to dive into somebody, apparently, who is pretty depraved. You started watching a video right before we came down here, and I was like, no, 
stop the video. Let me just tell you this story and I want to see your reaction to it. So the story that I'm going to bring to you tonight is about a murderer named Gary Heidnick. I had the opportunity to write this article for Living Paranormal magazine. If you guys aren't familiar with Living Paranormal, it's another project that I am part of. Living Paranormal magazine is a free online magazine that features articles about ghosts, haunted locations, UFOs, aliens, cryptids, spirituality, it has some amazing writers. And so if you guys have the opportunity, we publish quarterly issues and I have been doing their true crime writing for the past couple of issues. So why this, are you into true crime? Is that why you're the just one a little, <laughs> just a little. So the story that we are going to play out for you tonight also appeared in this last issue of Living Paranormal magazine. If you guys want to check it out there. Oh God! So I'm assuming we need to put some kind of a listener advisory right here. This one does need a listener discretion advised because of the graphic content of the crimes. Oh, great. So here we go. We're getting into uh, Gary Heidnick. So Shay, what do you think could be worse than a murderer and a serial rapist? I don't think there's any, unless you're like, you know, wearing the clothes just like Buffalo Bill or whatever from Silence of the Lambs. I mean, that's pretty, pretty messed up too when you're just doing things after the body's deceased. What about a murderer and serial rapist who also turned his victims into a meal? Oh, God. Oh, great. Here we go. Let me introduce you to schizophrenic millionaire eccentric Bishop Gary Heidnick, who abducted, held hostage, raped, tortured, and eventually murdered multiple women during the 1980s in his Philadelphia, Pennsylvania home. Gary Heidnick was born in November 1943 in East Lake, Ohio, just outside of Cleveland. Oh, great. An Ohio boy. Awesome. What, what is it about Ohio? I don't know. That area up around Cleveland is sketch. Yeah, real sketch. His mother was an alcoholic and mentally unstable, which led to his parents' divorce at a young age. Heidnick and his brother Terry relocated to live with their father and stepmother. The boy's disdain for their stepmother led to many arguments, their father always siding with her. As a child, Heidnick suffered a severe head trauma after falling from a tree, leaving him with a misshapen skull and was believed to have caused mental disabilities. He was bullied in school for his disability and his appearance and left public school as a teenager to attend Staunton Military Academy. After a period of time there, he left before graduating, joining the Army at age 18. However, his time in the Army was also short-lived as he was honorably discharged in 1962, receiving full medical disability for, quote, schizoid personality disorder. After discharge, Heidnick began nursing classes in Philadelphia, eventually completing them and taking an internship at Philadelphia General Hospital, all while volunteering at a local mental institution, the Elwin Institute. So he volunteered his time at a mental institute? Yes, he actually made it through these nursing courses, was working at a hospital, and then got privileges to volunteer at this mental institution, which was the beginning of his downfall. Wow. In 1970, Heidnick made his first suicide attempt after learning that his mother had committed suicide. This would be the first of 22 hospitalizations in which Heidnick would receive mental treatment. 
All the while, Heidnick would flourish financially through business deals that were later determined to be tax schemes, form relationships with numerous women, and father children. The first of his girlfriends was a mentally disabled woman named Anjanette Davidson. Davidson, whom he met at Elwin Institute, moved into Heidnick's home and he fathered his first child with her, a daughter named Maxine. During his relationship with Davidson, Heidnick abducted her sister, Alberta, from a mental institution in nearby Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Heidnick was arrested after Alberta was reported missing and later found chained in his basement. Heidnick was charged with abduction and rape. He was sentenced to three to seven years in prison and was released in April 1983. When he went up for parole, the board asked Heidnick why he felt he should be released from prison. Heidnick had no answer. Instead, he wrote on a piece of paper, quote, The devil put a cookie in my throat. <laughs> you guys should see the look on Shay's face right now. The, the devil, devil put, put a, a cookie, cookie in my throat. What the hell does that even mean? And guess what? They paroled him. Are you kidding me? No. Are you kidding me? They paroled him. If somebody says something that bizarre in a parole hearing, they deny guys parole for saying more dumb stuff than that. I mean, like normal stuff. That doesn't even make any sense. And they, they first of all, let me retract. Let me go back a little bit and get on a tangent here. So he's he's married to this woman or dating this woman, and she's got mental disabilities. Her sister also has mental disabilities. And he kidnaps and rapes this girl and puts her in his basement, chains her up in the basement. And he, he serves time in prison. And they parole him, knowing he has mental disabilities. They parole him, and he proves that he has mental disabilities by saying, the devil put a cookie in my throat. That's correct. That's exactly how that scenario played out. And this is in the 80s. This was in the 80s. That's right. 1983, Jesus he was paroled. Christ. Yeah. So you have to think about, you know, as the story progresses, these parole, who was ever on the board, kind of looking at each other to be like, oops, guys, we really messed up with this one. Yeah, because well, see, if you think that is the most depraved part of this story, put, put on, put on your big boy pants. It's not depraved. It just doesn't make any sense. If somebody is saying that, well, you would at least say, well, I think he needs to go to a psychiatric unit. I mean, that makes no sense whatsoever. But here is a pattern that seems to emerge in the 80s and 90s where the justice system fails these victims because they have precursors to see that this guy's not right in the head and they're going to go ahead and just say, oh, well, he's going to be okay. People weren't treated for mental disabilities. They were put into these like the Elwin Institute, like Cropsey. Oh, my God. Think about the stuff that we talked about there. And then when these places closed down or for whatever reason, they just let these people walk back out into the streets. Look at the people that they released when they just closed. Um Cropsy. I know, and that, that's, I mean, that's the most de depressing part about it is they just fend for yourself and go, and there's no there's nowhere to go, and that's that's what I'm saying. Like, man, like the justice system fails sometimes. It really sucks. So, 1983, Gary Heidnick is paroled after he was convicted of the abduction and rape of this mentally unstable woman. In 1985, Heidnick married Betty Disto, a native of the Philippines whom he met through a mail-order bride service. However, the marriage was short-lived as Disto discovered that Heidnick was having affairs with multiple women and claimed that Heidnick had abused her. Disto left the home and later notified Heidnick that she had been pregnant when she left and had given birth to a son she named Jesse. At this time, 
Heidnick also began a most curious business venture, the formation of his own church. Oh, that's where the bishop comes in. That's play. where the bishop comes in. So he's into a play. self-proclaimed bishop. He's self-proclaimed okay. bishop. Called, this is before the internet, folks, before you were allowed to be ordained on the internet. Yeah. You just went ahead and just called yourself a bishop. He wasn't really a bishop. Called, quote, the United Church of the Ministers of God, Heidnick placed a sign on the door of his home proclaiming his church, even creating an ID card with a picture of himself in a Roman collar calling himself Bishop Heidnick. So that you just gave me that image in my head. I picture Uncle Rico posing, you know, and Napoleon Dynamite he's posing on the side with his with his the hand tiny up little seahorses. Yeah, with the yeah. side of his hand on his chin and he's like, I'm a bishop. Heidnick is a little more creepy than that because I've seen the pictures, but yeah, the the little the Roman collar well, is yeah, similar there. That's just the the mental image I got when you said that. He invested fifteen hundred dollars of his money that he had saved from his disability checks from the military and invested them into businesses under the name of the church. The first of his investments placed into Playboy magazine. Seems right for yeah, you oh know, yeah, church yeah. investments. Yeah, absolutely. Makes sense. Soon, he had turned his meager investment into nearly $750,000 profit. He purchased a Rolls-Royce and a Cadillac, but regularly drove around the town in an RV trailer and slept on the streets. I have a feeling, before, sorry to interrupt, but I have a feeling <laughs> that this, for anybody who's hoping for a good out, outlook, you know, I'm going in blind too, this is not going to be a rags to riches success story, I have a feeling. You will not see him on the lifestyles of the rich yeah. and famous with what's his face. I don't he might be hanging name. out with Donald Trump, I don't know. He could be. Epstein actually. was. True. John Cassidy, a friend of Heidnick's, asked him the question, quote, don't you think if there is a God, he'll be upset with what you're doing to religion? Heidnick responded, no, God would be amused. God has a sense of humor. Great, great politician answer. Apparently, God also loved Playboy because that's where he made all of his money. All these guys, I mean, you know, not to get political with it all, but you look at these guys like Joel Olstein and whatever, they all have millions of dollars from being preachers for God. Oh, yeah. yeah, well, so did Bishop Heidnick. Yeah. Heidnick began using the church as a ruse to lead people into his home, including patients at the local mental facility. In 1986, he picked up the first of his victims, a prostitute named Josefina Rivera. After paying her for sexual favors, he choked her until she was unconscious and chained her in his basement. Heidnick then dug pits into the floor of his basement placed Rivera in one of these holes and covered it with a weighted board to keep her from escaping. In December of that year, Heidnick abducted a second woman, Sandra Lindsay. Sandra was mentally disabled and Heidnick had previously impregnated her. When Sandra had an abortion, Heidnick became infuriated, capturing her and placing her in the basement with Rivera. So they're both alive. Correct. They're both alive at this point. He rarely fed them, kept them half-naked, and repeatedly raped and abused them. On December 23rd, Heidnick drugged 19-year-old Lisa Thomas and placed her into captivity with the other two women. Just a week later, Heidnick abducted the most resistant of all of his victims, Deborah Dudley. Dudley, unlike the other women, would not obey Heidnick's rules. She regularly screamed out for help during Heidnick's abuse, which enraged him. He beat her frequently, kept her in the basement pit, and took his frustration for her out on all of his victims, 
by forcing them to have sex with each other and eat dog food in a most desperate attempt to keep his other captives from screaming out as well. He chained the women upside down from the rafters and forced a screwdriver into their ears, deafening the women. In early January, Heidnick abducted his fourth victim, Jacqueline Askins. On February 7th, Heidnick became enraged with Sandra Lindsay for unspecified reasons and chained her by her wrist to a basement beam. Sandra became ill, developed a high fever, and died within days. Then Heidnick did the unthinkable. He carried Sandra's body upstairs, dismembered her with a saw, and began cooking her flesh. He placed her head in a large pot on the stove to boil. Some of Sandra's remains were fed to Heidnick's dogs. The rest was fed to the remaining captives in the basement. Police were alerted to the home when neighbors complained of the rancid smell coming from Heidnick's residence. Each time, Heidnick claimed that he had been cooking and burned his food, causing the foul odors that emanated from the home. So not only was he consuming human flesh, he was force-feeding it to his captives. He never actually said that he ate the remains, but he cooked them and gave them to his dogs and then also force-fed them to the women he still had chained in the basement. And this guy, claimed he's on disability because he has a mental disability. Like that's that. That's... He was diagnosed as schizophrenic while he was in the army. Okay, so he is he's schizophrenic, but he knows what he's doing here. He knows absolutely what he's doing. The next murder that Heidnick committed came on March nineteenth, nineteen eighty-seven. Captive Deborah Dudley was thrown into a basement pit that Heidnick had filled with water. He then placed electrical cables into the water-filled pit and electrocuted her. Josefina Rivera, who had become Heidnick's favorite victim due to her willingness to cooperate in his crimes, assisted with the disposal of Deborah's body. The two later abducted another woman, Agnes Adams, to replace Deborah. Josefina had been given special privileges by Heidnick for her assistance and was even allowed to leave the home to visit her family. Unbeknownst to Heidnick, Josefina had a boyfriend on the outside and she ran to him instead spilling the horrors that had been happening to the women inside Heidnick's home. Her boyfriend called authorities and Heidnick was arrested. So that's the end of the story? So it goes on. I have watched, actually, these women, several of them came out and talked to news authorities. And maybe we can play a a clip of one of these right here. They all did local uh, news broadcast and told of the horrors that happened there, especially Josefina Rivera, who was his favorite captive. She was the one who she kind of played along so that he wouldn't kill her because she had already witnessed him murdering some of these other women. And so they actually came out and talked to the media and relived these horrors as they happened to her. Let's listen to uh, an interview, a partial interview by Josefina Rivera as she talks about in detail her experience with this sick SOB. He took me to his house. We went upstairs and um, we had sex. And afterwards, I was getting dressed and he came up behind me and started choking me. And, um, and he started choking me. But I, all I could remember was, I don't know, I guess it happened so fast, all I could remember was like a film projector 
of things that were going on in my life was like, you know, just flipping back. When I came to, um, he had a handcuff on my, on my, on my arm, on my vest, and um, he kept saying, um, shut up, keep still, I ain't gonna hurt you, I'm not gonna hurt you. Then he took um, muffler clamps and put the muffler clamps around my ankles with this chain, and then he used crazy glue to hold the nuts on, and he dried it with a hair dryer. He kept trying to fit me in this hole, and he kept taking his board, and he kept slamming it on my head, you know, trying to get me to fit into this hole. So when I was in there, I was, like, all cramped up and stuff, and I'm trying to, you know, and I'm, like, still screaming and hollering because I couldn't breathe because I have asthma and stuff, and I'm, like, in all this dirt, and then, like, I couldn't, I didn't have any room to move and stuff. So he comes back downstairs, and he, he like, pulls me out of the hole by my hair, and he has a stick, and he's just beating me with this stick, and then he puts me back in there. I was in there for a long, long time because I know I was in there at least 27 hours because of the times from the radio. The only thing I remember after that is that it was somebody upstairs over top of this hole that was crying, and I know he kept saying, come on, Sandy, you know I'm not going to hurt you. I'm, you know I'm not going to hurt you, right? Me and Sandra, for the first month, me and Sandra State were there by ourselves. We didn't take any baths, we didn't comb our hair, right? We spent most of the time in the hole. He would um, bring us hot chocolate in the morning for breakfast. And then when we went down, like at night. I want to interject there on that. So he brings them hot chocolate. He's got these two women in his basement, and he uh, keeps them alive. Like, and that, that's sadistic in my opinion. Like, he's keeping these two women alive. And, like, why do all these people that do that, why do they seem like they come up with these clever ways of keeping people alive, and then they do things like bring them hot chocolate? Like, oh, I'll tell you why when, when you're ready to hear, because he had a plan. Okay, well, let's listen to his plan. Let's listen to the rest of his, uh, or this interview here. He would bring down maybe two or three hot dogs or something like that. And he wanted to have a farm, and he wanted to have all these women on the farm, and with all these kids and blah, blah, blah. And something happened in the hole. By this time right there, everybody had, like, was in a rank all of a sudden now, you know, first in charge, second in charge, third in charge. So he was running out of room in the hole to fit everybody. So, um... Since I was there first, they gave me seniority over everybody else, and he would leave me in the basement and put everybody else in the hole and at least to be in charge of everybody down in the hole or whatever. So I kind of see a little bit of, not to foreshadow it, I guess, but I can kind of see a little bit of his plan here. He's bishop, and he's trying to make some kind of followers, like a church. Like he's making a church, but he's basically making these women be part of this church, even though they don't want to. And he wants to have a whole bunch of kids because I hope to God you're going to tell me he thinks he's like Jesus or something. I really hope that's what's next. It caused Sandra to go on punishment for all these days, you know, and um, he had her handcuffed like to the ceiling beams like for, for a couple of days and she wouldn't eat and stuff. And he didn't, um, 
and he was trying to make her eat, and he was like putting, she was putting bread in her mouth. Because when you got on punishment, first he would just give you water, then he would give you bread and water, and then you, like, I don't know, I guess like he would take away all your privileges and then you'd have to start all over again, you know? Our whole body just fell. And she was just like, the only thing that was holding her up was just the handcuff, you know? And I kept saying, Lisa, go over there and tap Sandra and see what's, and tell her, you know, see what's wrong with her, because her whole body was collapsed. And she kept tapping her and tapping her and Sandra didn't move, you know? So he just puts the key in the handcuff and her whole body falls and her back of her head hits the, 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 the concrete on the, well, like the hole, the surrounding of the hole, is the back of her head like hits the corner of this hole. And um, he's like, she's dead. You know, she's dead. And it like really had me so messed up because Sandra had been there with me from the beginning, you know? He like untakes her chain off and stuff and, you know, he takes her upstairs. He got Sandra's head cooking in a pot upstairs, right? And he got her ribs and stuff and a little roasting pan in the oven, you know, and her arms and stuff is in the freezer. And he says that if I don't cut out my bullshit, that I, this is going to be me. They were watching an Apple dog food commercial or some kind of food dog food commercial. And they were like saying, Damn, that dolphin looks good. It looks good enough to eat. So Donna says, Gary, Deborah says that she would eat dog food and stuff if you would give it to her, but that's not what she said. So Gary goes upstairs and he gets the dog food and he brings it downstairs and he makes these three eat them, the ones that was on punishment. He was taking Sandra's body and grinding it in a food processor and mixing it with this dog food that they was, he was feeding these, these three other girls. He used to fill um, the hole up with water and take electrical wire. Well, like a plug that you plug in, he would take two, strip the two wires, and then um, he would take the wire while they were in the water and put it on their chains. And in the beginning, Deborah was, was hollering. And then she didn't holler anymore. He thought something was wrong with the wire. I said, look, look down there in that hole and see what's wrong with that girl. I said, because he kept saying, she keeps saying Deborah did, that she laying face down in the water. So he finally listens up the board. And he says, yeah, she is laying face down in the water. And he's like, picks her up like by her hair, back of her head and something. He's like, yeah, he's right. She's dead. And, now he's like, now all my troubles are over with. Now I can get back to having a peaceful basement. I, Josephine Rivera and Gary Heinick, um, electrocuted Deborah Dudley at 3520 North Marshall Street on whatever day it was. I can't remember. It might have been, let see, it was freedom on 25th. Might have been like the 21st of March, 1987, by applying wires, applying electricity to her chains while sitting in a pool of water. So that's pretty depraved. And the simple fact that the way she describes the story, she seems emotionless too. And um, that's even more scary because was she a willing participant or did she really, you know, was she his accomplice? In well, you've story? got to think about the background of these women Josefina 
was of below average mental capacity. She was making her living as a prostitute. The women that he abducted and chained in the basement, uh, some of them were prostitutes. Some of them did come from these mental institutions. And so he was looking for people that he considered weak, who wouldn't speak out against him, and who would be willing to go along with his plans. And I think part of that was Josefina's reasoning behind it. But I do also think that she was so afraid that she was just doing whatever she had to do to survive. Now, being schizophrenic does not mean that you have some low mental capacity. It just means that you have this 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 uh, disease that alters your personality. I know I knew somebody who had schizophrenia, and they were intelligent. They were super super smart. And what? I think this guy. I mean, he had all these clever ways of doing this stuff, and he knew how to manipulate people, and he knew exactly what to do and say to keep these women in line. And he was smart enough to make almost a million dollars on these tax fraud schemes through his church. He set up this church knowing that they can be like this nonprofit or whatever. He doesn't have to pay taxes on it, but he's investing money that people gave him into Playboy magazine and other business ventures and made all of this money by doing that. He invested what, $1,500 and made it turn around to $750,000. And in the eighties, that's, I mean, that was a lot of money. So he was smart enough to be almost a millionaire And smart enough to keep these women captured in his basement doing his will for one main purpose, basically, that we'll get into. Well, well, let's get into that main purpose because uh, she kind of like maybe foreshadowed a little bit of what what it could be. When police responded to Heidnick's home, they discovered nearly 27 pounds of human flesh in his freezer. Heidnick was arrested and charged with murder. Heidnick quickly rebutted his crimes in court. First, he claimed that the women had actually been in the basement of the home when he purchased it, and he chose not to report it to authorities. When this claim failed, Heidnick attempted to plead insanity, but this was quickly dismissed due to the fact that Heidnick had nearly become a millionaire through his business scheme with the church. On July 1, 1987, Heidnick was convicted of two counts of murder, five counts of kidnapping, six counts of rape, four counts of aggravated assault, and one count of involuntary deviant sexual intercourse. He was sentenced to death. While on death row, Heidnick attempted suicide by overdosing on Thorazine, but he recovered after a brief coma. Heidnick was awarded a brief stay of execution in 1997 after another competency hearing, but this stay would also be short-lived. Gary Heidnick was executed by lethal injection, On July 6, 1999, he was 55 years old. The horrors of Heidnick's crimes became well-known throughout the country as his surviving victims began speaking out in the media about their time in captivity. Heidnick's use of the man-made pits he created in the basement were even the basis for the character of Buffalo Bill in the major motion picture The Silence of the Lambs. Josefina Rivera, the first and favorite of all Heidnick's victims, spoke out about his supposed motive behind the abductions. She stated that Heidnick told her, quote, I want to have kids. Lots of them. I got kids already, but the state keeps taking them off me. Well, now I got a way of having kids so nobody can take them away. You're just the start. 
you're going to have my baby down here. But not just you. I want to get 10 girls down here so they can all have my kids. Rivera went on to say about her captor, quote, I was caged, beaten, and raped by a deranged cannibal. These are things you only see in a horror movie. So his whole plan was just to have lots of kids? He told her that he wanted to have lots of kids, whether or not they were followers in his church, whether he was angry because the state would not give him permission to see his other children, because he was a convicted felon and mentally unstable. So he said that these women were going to be his way for having kids. Now this guy's deranged. But I totally blame the justice system on this one for letting this guy run free because he, uh, he was a he was a sicko. This is a sick, sick story, and yeah, he 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 killed he killed two women essentially, and he could have killed a lot more, you know. So thank God, uh, Josefina was allowed those privileges to get out and report this. You know, she was smart enough to realize that his control didn't reach that far, but uh. What I'm confused about is you said in the story he he shoved the screwdriver in the ear of his victims, but he didn't do that to Josefina. I don't think so. He did because the other women were screaming out, and so when one screamed, the other would scream. And so he did that to deafen the ones that had been basically going against what he told them to do. That was their punishment. That was his way of thinking he could keep them quiet because he thought if he couldn't hear the screams of the other women, then they, they couldn't cry out either. Yeah, but that still, you would, I think you'd still scream. I would think you would scream because someone stuck a screwdriver in your ear. Well, no, but I think you would still be screaming anyway. Anytime you saw the guy, I mean, if you couldn't hear, you'd still be screaming. You'd still be making noise because you weren't deaf your whole life. So you knew, you knew how to vocalize. So his defense was that he was mentally unstable, but no, his greatest defense, the, the, and this is why this is some some of these people just don't make sense. You can be as intelligent as you want to be, but one of his defense statements was, "These women were in this house when I moved in." I mean, how, you honestly think that the world is going to buy that? Like, like a oh, piece well, of furniture. There's all all these women just appeared in my house, or you know, I bought the house and they were there. Like on closing, I went in there, I found all these women. Like seriously, dude, come on. Yeah, he did. He said that they were chained in the basement when he bought the house, and he just didn't report it to authorities. But I think he knew he really messed up when he said that because then he pled insanity naturally. But I, I find it funny that you know they base all these characters and movies off these deranged serial killers because this guy was based off Buffalo Bill and the movie Silence of the Lambs was based off this guy and Ed Gein because Ed Gein did kill women and then make their clothes into into suits. So Skin that's suits. that's the other one that he was based off of too. And I guess you could kind of say Hannibal Lecter's based off him in, in a way too because he, he was a cannibal. But uh, yeah, that's this is a pretty depraved individual i do believe and thank god he's dead it's a crazy disgusting story and there are many many interviews on uh, youtube and other media outlets that you can find to watch uh, some of what these women had to say and the long-term effects that this torture and this crazy crazy crime had on them yeah wow uh you really kind of blew me out of the water with this one there weebs Serial Killer Christmas. Well, with that being said, kids, we're going to go ahead and say thanks for tuning in to this episode of Serial Spirits, the podcast. 
We'll be back again in two weeks. I just have to say, please continue to listen to our serial snippets. Uh, they are our half-hour short little episodes that we do weekly. Uh, me and Weebs, obviously you've heard, we alternate weeks. We get some people, we sit down, we talk about the paranormal, we talk about true crime, and uh, just have a good time doing it. So continue to listen to those. We'll have a new one out next week, and uh, we'll see you around. Bye-bye. Once again, thank you for listening to Serial Spirits, the podcast. Check us out weekly on Paranormal Warehouse at ParanormalWarehouse.com, on iTunes at Serial Spirits, and on SoundCloud. Please rate and review the show. Follow us on all your social media apps. Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Serial Spirits, on Twitter at Serial Spirits, and on Instagram. Until next time, be aware. Be safe.